Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can cease from our work this day and gather together as your people to hear you, to meet you in worship. And you have been so faithful to us throughout this epiphany season, Lord, and you have revealed yourself faithfully through your word, through your sacrament, and just the means of grace which you give us in our ordinary lives. Lord, we ask you would do it again, and you would speak to us powerfully through this word so that we might be your people in a more profound way than ever before and further your kingdom here across the West Shore. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 1973, I'm 11 years old. I, I got up one Saturday morning and I turned on my Motorola 1950s radio and it took a while to warm up. And I had it tuned in to DC 101, which was the rock station out of DC. And you know, cool rock jocks right back then, those of you who remember those days. And the guy had a low voice. And now, DC 101. And I heard this song, and it wasn't just one song, it was two put together. And I said to myself, I gots to have it. So I hopped on my Raleigh 10 speed because I had a pocket full of cash because I had done my chores and my dad had paid me. And so I rode from 9000 Hamilton Drive, the 20-minute ride, seven miles, to 9520 Main Street, Fairfax, Virginia, where giant music at Pickett Shopping Center was. It was like just music heaven to this 11-year-old where I walked in, and I didn't even have to go to where it was in the record shop. It was there because it had just come out that week. So, like, you know, we didn't carry backpacks back then. I... Rode the bike, put the record under my album, and I rode down. It would be like today a kid riding down Crocker Bassett. I kid you not. It was a busy highway. Different times. Mom, Dad, sure, go. You know, so I'm, I'm riding back, and I ride back through our neighborhood, and I get home, go upstairs, take the shrink wrap off my album, pull it out of the cover, take it out of the sleeve, place it on my turntable where for the first time, my own ears, I heard ZZ Top's rock. said, oh no, these two songs got to go together. And the song ends, hit it baby.
with you because those two songs together became my music therapy throughout my childhood and into my teen years. You know, your teen years, you're up and down and up and down emotionally, right? You didn't do well on a test, and your grades came home. Show me your grades. And <laughs> you know, <sighs> I shut myself in the room. Girl said no, she wouldn't go to the dance with me Saturday night. I'd shut myself in the room. <laughs> My team didn't play. I mean, we didn't even have a pitching staff my senior year. The first year my team hadn't made the playoffs in 10 years because we didn't have any pitchers. Shut myself in my room, and that became my music therapy. And as bad as my life was, it wasn't bad as those guys having to wait, wait for the bus all day. <laughs> and I wish Jesus would come to D.C. and walk on the Potomac River because it could certainly use the help, I thought. Because African-Americans know what the blues are all about, right? And if you're honest with yourself, you know exactly what we're talking about when you feel discouraged, when you feel blue, when you feel down, when you feel alone, when you feel depressed, marginalized, the only one in the office who believes this, the only one in the classroom who believes this. And you're standing by yourself. That no, you're talking, but nobody's listening. This text in 1 Kings 19 reveals to us that, you know what, we can do better than music therapy. So I invite you to please open up your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. If you're visiting, you'll find it in the back of your bulletin. Because what we see throughout the Bible that it teaches us through biographies. God doesn't come to us and give you a history lecture of dates and events. We all know that's boring. We've all had history teachers that were like that, right? No. God comes through real life, real stories. And that when God decided to bring salvation, he didn't bring you a lecture. He brought you a person. And so the important thing that we get, and there's nobody more flesh and blood than Elijah. Quick review, because if you can't understand chapter 19, you'll tell, unless you understand what's happened in chapter 18. The nation of Israel has departed from faith in the Lord. God's people were called in Genesis 12 to live unto the Lord, under the Lord. No kings of their own, they're to live under the Lord directly, so that they would be one nation under God. They're the only one nation who ever was, and even they failed at that as a nation. So it was up and down. You get to 1 Kings, it's a divided kingdom now. You have the north and the south called Israel, Judah in the south, and the king of the north is King Ahab, and what he decided to do was do a politically alliance marriage. As you know, it happened in Europe all throughout the Middle Ages, Right? You had these politically aligned marriages with the king of Tyre and Sidon, who the king of Tyre and Sidon is a priest king of Baal. So his daughter Jezebel is a devout, fervent, Baal-worshipping, the fertility god. So just imagine what that worship was like, all right? And when she came to Israel, she didn't just come by herself with her little Baal Bible. She came with all the priests, all the prophets, all the seminaries, and set up shop. They had Lifeway Baal Publishing. 
And so what happened was it went out through all the nations. It came to the place that it seemed like the whole nation of Israel, which was called to be worshiping God, they were worshiping Baal. So God decided to do two things. He said, I'm going to send my man, Elijah, and I'm going to give you guys a drought like you've never seen until you turn back to me. So it's, it's chapter 18 of, sec, of 1 Kings, and what happens is Elijah says, okay, we're going to have a gunfight at the O'Shea OK Corral with you and your boys, King Ahab. I challenge you. Meet me on Mount Carmel. We'll each make a sacrifice, and we'll see who is truly God, and we'll bring rain. We'll pray for rain. And Ahab says, great, you're on. So he sends 450 prophets of Baal versus one Elijah. That's the odds. And Elijah says, all right, I'll be fair. You guys go first. I mean, he's very cocky. It's great drama. You can't get better than this. So these 450 Baal guys bring a bull. They make an altar. They construct, and they start to pray early in the morning. And they pray hour after hour after hour after hour till noon. And Baal's not answering because Baal doesn't exist. So they start to cut themselves thinking through their sincerity of worship that Baal will listen to them and answer their prayers. And it's around noon or one o'clock that Elijah just starts to mock them. He shouts out, you need to shout louder. He can't hear you. <laughs> then he says, maybe he went away. Or maybe he's on the john. <laughs> Thought you'd never hear that on church, did you? That's the Hebrew. And then after a while, Elijah says, all right, that's enough. Take, and now all of Israel has come out to see this duel. All right, so there's thousands of people. <laughs> Set up 12 stones, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Sacrifice a bull, lay the sacrifice in the center of the circle. Dig a trench around the circle. And Elijah says, bring water. Bring more, bring more, bring more, bring more, bring more. It's totally soaked with water. And everybody go, what are you doing? We have a drought after all. And he says, all right. And he prays, oh Lord, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, oh Lord. Answer me, so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to the, again. How long did that take? 15 seconds? <laughs> Fire comes down, consumes the bull. Not only the bull, all the water, all the water around the trench, and all the stones themselves are consumed and burned up. The people go, And it's as if Elijah goes, truth, false. Now, kill him. <laughs> they kill all 450 prophets. And Elijah looks at Ahab and says, look on the horizon. Storm cloud is coming. He goes, you better get back to home before the storm comes. Kind of mocks him a little bit. And so Elijah starts to get in and go back as well. And then we come to chapter 19. Because Elijah is thinking, okay, one of two things is going to happen, right? Either now because of this, 
Jezebel and Ahab are going to turn to the Lord, or the people are going to throw them out. But at the beginning of verse 19, neither of those things happen. And Jezebel orders a hit on Elijah. Oh, may it be, you better uh, be gone because I'm going to kill you, basically. And so what we see in this text is some very clear lessons for both you and I, how we, in our times of being down, having the blues, can rely on the Lord like Elijah. Because I believe Elijah learns and we learn here three great truths about the Lord as the Lord takes him away in the first part of chapter 19 that we didn't even read. He takes him away for a rest, gives him some counsel, and then sends him out again. But there's three greater truths than just that that we see that I think are important for our lives. We learn something about the world, we learn something about us, and we learn something about the Lord. First, let's look at the world. And this is, this is very important. Elijah's pride at this point made him overly optimistic and overly pessimistic. In four verses, he goes from the high of highs to the low of lows. Thinking to himself, how in the world could people see all that great activity of God on Mount Carmel and yet not turn to the Lord? He remembered, his prayer was, Lord, do this so that you turn the people's hearts back. And it didn't. <laughs> Elijah was in despair because he had an inadequate understanding of human sin. And if you think about it, the reason his theology of sin was so shallow, probably because his pride was pretty great at that time. While I was preparing for this talk, I came across an, an article by Dick Lucas, who was the rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate from 1960 to 1990. He preached a sermon on this text in, in the 80s, and he quoted the Spectator magazine. And he quoted it. This quote said this is very important, which is vital to this. The quote is, it says whether you're a communist or a fascist or a libertarian, the real problem we have is not what we think the problem ought to be, but that we think our program will solve all the problems. These people believe if only their theory were enacted and accepted, it would be very well. They think that there is a correct analysis of society, as if society were a machine, and you only have to remove the monkey wrench in the works for it to function properly. Because of this belief, the world lives in a ferment of extravagant hope and bitter disappointment. Every day, politicians promise health, wealth, and peace. Newspapers demand an end to crime or crash programs to stop poverty, sickness, or cruelty to children. Every day, politicians and newspapers, therefore, are forced to admit people are still poor, still ill, still fighting one another, and still dying. Therefore, they desperately have to blame their enemies for all their wickedness, and all this is pride. Now, the reason that's such an important quote, and the reason I think Dick Lucas brought it up in the 80s, and the reason I'm bringing it up now is that they're right. If you believe the real problem out in the world is they, people just don't buy into my problem, <laughs> buy into my agenda, or if they just, you know, got their lives together, everything would be fine. 
In other words, if you're a conservative politically, and some of you are, or if you're a liberal politically, and some of you are, and if you're a Christian, this is something we have to utterly avoid. If you're a conservative politically, you mustn't demonize liberal political leadership. If you understand sin, you know the real problem of the world is not liberal politics, it's sin. And if you're a liberal and you're a Christian, you don't demonize conservatives because you know if you have a decent doctrine of sin, the real problem of the world is not conservative politics. And the fact of the matter is, unless you have a deep, deep understanding of sin and how deep it is in the human heart, no matter how great your victories are, you'll always demonize others because of your pride, and you'll always be upset. You will live, as the article in The Spectator said, in a ferment of extravagant hope and bitter disappointment, infuriated by your enemies and sometimes in despair. So, like Elijah, maybe that's why we're blue at times. It's not just we have to apply this to our politics. I'll go one step further. Elijah's being shown here, and we're being shown here. We have to be very, very careful to think our little program is to solve anybody's problems ultimately. Have you ever found that you've invested in somebody else in any way, either spiritually or physically or whatever, and they don't get better? They just turn back to their old lifestyle? How about yourself? Have you, have you been doing very well, maybe in your walk with the Lord and had some great victories, and all of a sudden you turn back and it's some old pattern of behavior, and you think, ah, why am I doing this? I know what I should do, but I don't. See, our little programs are never going to help us completely overcome it because victories are all partial. It's our pride that leads us to despair. And the reality is, we have to have a proper understanding of human sin, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and, and look what Elijah says. I'm the only believer left in all of Israel. I'm it. You know, notice what he says in the end. Oh no, Elijah, there's actually 7,000 of you who haven't bent their knee to Baal. Now, you know what's going on here. It's very typical. Uh, as I said, pride leads us to delusion and a sense of utopianism about life in a world. But the pride can also lead us to pessimism. All right? One of the reasons we get in despair is that we think we're right in the way we do the Christian life. And, you know, we do this all the time, you know, we're the only ones who really have it all together. Those evangelical free church people take this thing a little too seriously at times. Or the Roman Catholics, you know, they're, they're kind of believers, but they don't have it together. Or the Charismatics will say of us, you guys, you guys don't have the Holy Spirit, and we'll say, oh yeah, well you guys are over-emotional, you know. Because of our pride, we begin to say these things, and it's pride that leads us to see not what God is doing in the world, just like Elijah, God keeps saying, I am moving. Your pride is keeping you from seeing it. It leads you down this ridiculous road to optimism or pessimism, and you're bouncing between the two, like Elijah. Just four verses between. Great optimism and great pessimism. And, and it's amazing. Look what he does. He goes, Elijah, go anoint Hazael, king of Syria. Hazael's a pagan. 
God's going to use him to minister to Israel. Yea, he's going to use him to minister to Israel. You know? And, and, and same thing with uh, Jehu. It's absolutely astounding. He's got to anoint a pagan king. He's saying, Elijah, I'm in charge. I got this. I'm using people who aren't in your court to keep the wisdom of the Lord alive in Israel. To keep the flourishing alive, beauty alive. I'm working out and I'm doing things. What's the matter with you? Get up and go. See, if you have a proper understanding of your sin, you understand the depth of your sin, you can now see the grace that God offers us. And you don't have to live in great optimism or great pessimism. You can live right in the center of a walk with the Lord. And that's what Elijah's being called to. Even when you have the blues, instead of wishing for the good old days of 1955, 65, 75, 85, 95, 2005, whenever your good old days were, if you really look back at them, you will say, good old days, right. Live in the present. And with a proper understanding of the world. The world is sinful, and we all need a Savior. Secondly, we learn something about us. And this is, this is not the biggest point. It's a small point, but I think it's worth. In verses 1 through 8, what you see Elijah doing is God is calling him away for a time of rest. He's just gone through this incredible experience on Mount Carmel. He's now got a death wish on him, and he's taken off down south into Judah. And what does God do? You know, what we tend to, he gives him some rest, some physical rest. We think, you know, I'm having this problem, well, it's due to my sin. <laughs> or I'm not having enough quiet time, or whatever it is. Sometimes it's, it's not spiritual. Sometimes it is physical. And you just need to sleep. Sometimes you need to get a bite to eat. Sometimes you need to read a book. Just be quiet. Sometimes you need to just listen to some music. I have a recommendation. <laughs> See, we're not disembodied spirits. We have a physiological nature. And sometimes our, our blues is physiological. We have a relational nature, therefore, and so sometimes we just need friends. We're lonely. We have a creative nature. Sometimes we need beauty. And we're so very often quick and immediately to say, oh, the reason I'm going through these problems is because of my sin and my disobedience to the Lord. And God says, stop it. As a counselor, God takes a multidiscipline approach with us, okay? And so he says to Elijah, what you really need is a nice stay at an Airbnb by the sea. <laughs> and that's what happens. Now, eventually he does say, Elijah, you need time apart where you can study my word and you can hear what I have to say. And sometimes we need to be super spiritual and sometimes we don't need to be, okay? But that's what we learn about us. And last, what we learn is about God. Could God takes him to Mount Horeb and he's hiding in a cave. He doesn't even have his servant with him. And God calls him out of the cave and then there's this great wind. There's a great earthquake and a great fire. And God's not in the fire. And God comes to him in a low whisper in the King James in a still, small voice. What's God saying in this? 
I think is what he's saying is this. Number one, if we want to find God, Mount Carmel isn't the way to go. And as awesome as the great wind was, and the earthquake which shook the rocks, and the fire that came out of nowhere appearing to Elijah, Elijah could tell God wasn't in it. What impressed Elijah the most was God came to him in the grace of a still, small voice of his word. Mount Carmel didn't move anybody. Did you notice that? The only thing Mount Carmel did was cause a riot. Really. Because it didn't change the people's hearts. And we've seen that before in the scriptures. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and, and the poor man Lazarus. The rich man's in hell and he calls up to, and says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, the poor beggar, by the gate to go back and, and to my family and tell them so that they can escape my fate. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They won't even listen if someone rises from the dead. What does that mean? He says, don't you realize it's God speaking through the word of God that changes hearts? Not Christopher Nolan special effects or George Lucas special effects. What it is, it's God's grace through the still small voice of his word. Not the earthquakes, not the fire, not the wind. Not the fire and judgment things that you see. Because we think, yeah, that's right, God will get them. You know, God really got those bales. James and John, the sons of thunder in Luke 9, did the same thing. They go into Samaria, the Samaritans won't listen to Jesus. And James and John say, hey Lord, let's bring out the howitzers. Let's call down the angels and just zap these guys. And Jesus says, no, fellas, just keep moving. Just keep moving. Why? Because if Jesus were to call down judgment, who would be left standing? No one but Jesus. <laughs> Jesus knows that. He's just trying to teach James and John, and they eventually learn. My friend, Jesus says, you see, the judgment of the fire, the judgment of the earthquake, the wind, I take that all on. Martin Luther says, judgment is God's strange work. It's not his first impulse towards his people. It's always the grace that comes first. But what the Lord is saying is, you're not going to meet me in the spectacular. You're going to meet me in the ordinary. Because it's Jesus who took the wind and inherited the wind. Proverbs eleven twenty nine, He he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. Jesus took the brutal wind for us. When Jesus died, the earth shook. And he took the earthquake for us. He took the fire of God's wrath in our place. And that's the good news. Because judgment is my strange work, says the Lord. And it's a mean to an end because judgment can come down on Jesus so I can give you grace. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can understand the world. 
Otherwise, you'll be bouncing back between over-optimism and over-pessimism. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it'll help you understand yourself, the depths of your sin, and despite it, how much you are loved by God. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it'll help you understand the Lord, for he comes to you in grace, through his word in a, in a low whisper. He's the one who comes in gentleness and weakness and He's the one who comes not to bring vengeance, but to take vengeance so we can have his gracious voice, ladies and gentlemen. Young people, you know what it's like to be down. I, 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 you know, the social media can get anybody down. You guys have grown up in the midst of the social media. I want you to know that your identity is in God. God created you and loves you so. Don't ever forget that. You won't even be hanging around those high school and middle school friends 20 years from now, so who cares what they think of you? <laughs> Listen to Uncle Gene. He's right. <laughs> All right? You're so loved by God. Listen to his voice and what he has to say to you. Let him speak to you through it. Adults, we are so convinced that the world would just follow our plan or this agenda. Everything would be just peachy. <laughs> right? God is speaking to us. Let's listen to his agenda. You're entitled to your political convictions. That's fine. But my point in sharing this with you is let's be on God's agenda here. Because he comes to us and speaks to us in a low whisper. My older retired friends, you, you know, you, your knees don't feel as like they used to. Your hips don't feel like you used to. You can't Remember those names like you used to? Well, that's happened to me at 56, so, you know, welcome to the club. But my point in sharing this with you is, oh, God loves you so. You have a purpose here, a ministry here with us. Because God is working here like he was working then. What good, wis what good is wisdom, we think, if the Lord, we can't remember things, but you're so loved. Look at Elijah. Read the word. Let him speak to you in that low whisper. I know if there's one thing that's very common among us here at Christ Church when I visit folks and I just ask them, what are you reading? How's your prayer life? 99.9% of the time you say, ah, I'm not reading the Bible. Ah, I'm, I'm, I'm not praying. Well, welcome to the world of underachievers. Okay? That's us. Okay? As we leave Epiphany and go into Lent, let's listen to the word. Spend some time in prayer, just praying the targets of the Lord's Prayer together. Just, just get into it, because what you're going to discover, my friends, is you've got something that's going to keep you so grounded and centered, you won't need to listen to waiting on the bus. <laughs> we have great hope right in front of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have Jesus, and for showing us these great truths this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we might understand them so well that it would really change in the way we move out into our world. That you would help us to be a people who breathe grace, not judgment. Help us to be a people who would not demonize our opponents. To be a people who are steadfast, stable, and to be a people who see you at work wherever we are. 
Keep us from a pride that would bounce us back from over-optimism or over-pessimism. Lord, we pray you would grant us these things at the end of this epiphany season. And we thank you that you sent us not a concept or a principle or a lecture, but you sent us a person. So Lord, help us to apply these things in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.